Hi, everyone. Welcome to Spot of Food, the podcast. I am Shauna McQueen, a registered dietitian and whole food chef. We have a very exciting episode for you today. We have not one, but two fantastic interviews that I'm excited for everyone to hear. We're also going to be sharing some of our favorite holiday recipes, talking a little bit about comfort food and learning about spices. So let's kick things off with the first interview with the co-founders of the fantastic single origin spice company, Burlap and Barrel. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining today. I am here today with Ori Zohar and Ethan Frisch, the co-founders of Burlap and Barrel Spices. Um, they are a public benefit corporation sharing single origin spices that have been described by America's Test Kitchen as a game changer. Thank you guys so much for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Yeah, so why don't we start out? Um, how about you guys tell me a little bit about the inspiration behind the company and what you do? Sure. So as you mentioned, we're a public benefit corporation. And the reason that we, we set ourselves up like that as a spice company was that uh, there really had never been any work done on improving supply chains for spices. We've, we've seen a revolution take place in the coffee industry and in tea and in, in chocolate, even in, in, you know, farmer's market veggies, people want to know more about where their food comes from. But the spice trade was still this completely opaque, mysterious, industry um, and we decided to, to change that. So uh, I, I had been a chef and then uh, became an aid worker. Ori's background is in marketing and, and startup operations and this is our second company together. Um, we started this one when I had been living in Afghanistan, had come across this incredible variety of wild cumin that grows in the mountains in the northeast of the country, a place that I was spending a lot of time in. I started bringing it home to share with friends in the, in the restaurant industry and uh, brought some to Ori in San Francisco and said, what do you think? Is, is, is there a business here? And, and here we are, I don't know, whatever, six, seven years later. So um, clearly there was, and we were able to take that, uh, that sort of model of working directly with, with smallholder producers, um, mostly people who have never exported before. We set them up to export. We help with FDA registrations and food safety testing and all the other uh, really exciting regulatory work that goes into importing food into the U.S. for the first time, um, and uh, and we were able to expand that model to to a dozen other countries to work with uh, a white pepper farmer in Indonesia, a turmeric farmer in India, um, foragers for wild sumac in Turkey, and and what we realized pretty quickly was that uh, when you're working with a farmer who knows what they're doing, who cares deeply about what they're growing, you get a, a, a really delicious product. You get something that tastes a whole lot better too. Absolutely. And, um, you know, this was the first time exploring burlap and barrel that the first time that I even had heard of single origin spices, although you mentioned the single origin coffee is super popular, but what are some of those benefits of going with that single origin route? You know, this is Ori and, and one of the, you know, one of the biggest things is around like freshness and flavor. We often tell people that when they're substituting our spices in the regular recipes to use half or a third just to kind of get started. But I think it's a similar thing to, you know, we've all had that like farmer's market apple, you know, and they compared it to the one that's been in the grocery store that probably was picked, you know, six to 12 months ago and sat in cold storage forever. And then you take that bite out of farmer's market apple and you're like, oh my God, I totally get it. And so one is you get a really clean supply chain. 
it comes and it was recently harvested and come to you from, from a really like short path from the farmer's field to your kitchen. Um, and then two is we, we work with our partner farmers and we make sure to pay them significantly more than the commodity market. We work to set them up as Ethan was talking about to be the, the first time exporters. And so you're going to come across fresher spices, more interesting varietals and really strong flavor. And even if you're just a home cook starting out, it shouldn't be intimidating. Like one of our favorite uses just to like sprinkle it over whatever your mac and cheese, right? <laughs> you know, throw some veggies, toss them in some spices. And like that, there's a really easy way to get started. And we promise that you're going to be happy about it. And whoever you're cooking for is going to be pretty excited too. Yeah. I, um, you know, I have been uh, playing around with spices a lot in my own kitchen. And one of, one of the most important things that I think any home cook can learn is figuring out how to balance flavor. And um, that can become, you know, it's a, it's a learning experience, a total learning curve when you're adding a lot of new spices into your repertoire that you haven't really worked with before. But the best way to do it is to, you know, keep playing around with it, adding new things and tasting as you go to see, you know, all right, what happens if I add a little of this? What happens if I add a little of that? Um, but for people who might be uh, a little intimidated with adding, you know, new spices into their kitchens, what would be maybe the first few ones that you would recommend for people to get started? Well, I think where, where a lot of people kind of can get intimidated by spices is you look up a spice and you start looking up recipes and then you're like, oh my God, I have to master a whole new cuisine in order to figure out how to add coriander into my cooking. And we talk about it a lot in the opposite way of like take dishes that you know how to make and that you love and add spices to them. So, right, like everyone knows how to fry an egg. So top a fried egg with some of our Urfa chili or, you know, even throw some black lime on it. Um, everybody knows how to like roast veggies or, you know, what, whatever is your like, your like secret dish and the thing that you like to make for yourself, try it with some spices. And like, we recommend experimenting and throwing some stuff on there. You're not going to ruin it. It'll be really interesting. You'll really appreciate it. But some of our favorite, you know, like, so that's like some of the best sellers, for example, like everyone has been using, you know, cooking at home and stewing things and doing long cooking things. So try some of the herbs, like the, the, like flowering hits the thyme. Um, try some, a big hit has been our black lime, which are whole limes that are dried in the sun and they oxidize and turn black as they dry and they get this kind of sour, savory flavor that's really fun as a finishing spice. That's perfect on top of chicken or on top of pastas and salad dressings and things like that. Um, our black urfa chili and our silk chili, the silk chili is the sun-dried version of it, which is the same as the Aleppo pepper and it's kind of medium spicy and a little sweet and tomato-y. And the black urfa chili instead is dried under these, these plastic tarps where it cooks in its own juices and gets like tobacco-y and raisiny and chocolatey and still has this medium spiciness. And these are all like really easy finishing spices where you can just like sprinkle it when you're done cooking, if that's where you want to go. And even, you know, if you're, if you're really saying, hey, I don't cook, order some takeout, order some pizza, top it with these spices, you're going to love it. And so there are a lot of really easy ways to get, to get started with spices that don't really involve reinventing the wheel. If you want to, please do. There's this whole other world of spice forward cuisines that we would love for you to get into, but you don't have to start there. You can just start with things that you feel are kind of within your reach and that you already know how to do. I love that. That makes it super accessible. And you know, one of the things that I really like about experimenting with new flavors and new spices as uh, an RD is that any kind of new flavor that you're getting or new dish that you're trying, it kind of challenges your 
taste buds in a way that it makes you really tune into your meal and kind of focus on the whole eating experience. Um, so in a way, playing around with this stuff kind of encourages you to be a more mindful eater. Um, so I guess what I, what I would be interested to know from you guys, has your awareness of all these different flavors kind of impacted your approach to eating at all? And if so, how? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I can answer this first, and then Ethan, I'm sure you are. Ethan comes from a, a more a, a proper cooking background than I do. I'm the guy that's just messing around in the kitchen and throwing stuff together and hoping that it all comes out well. <laughs> but in, in, my, in my background, like, I think that I would always rely really heavily on, like, salt or sugar or olive oil or whatever form of fat to, like, be the basis for flavor in all of my dishes. And I still love those things. But the spices are kind of brought in a much broader palette of flavors to play around with, whether it's sour or tart or spicy or savory or funky. You know, it's, it's been really, really fun to have like a lot more things to play with. And now I keep my spices right next to my stove because if they're within arm's reach, then they end up getting incorporated into my cooking a lot more often. Yeah, and I think uh, so much of the, the origin of the company came from this experience that I think a lot of people have had of traveling, of eating while you're traveling and, and just being blown away by the flavor of what you're eating and then trying to recreate that dish when you get home and, and being unable to do it uh, because you just don't have the ingredients available. Um, and, and so uh, trying to share some of that, some of the experience that we've had of, of going, tasting amazing things, bringing them back with us, being able to cook amazing things with the ingredients that we brought home. Um, and so being able to set up these supply chains for higher quality ingredients uh, that have this added added benefit of of supporting smallholder farmers, um, it just it just gives people the tools that they have always needed to to, to recreate dishes that that we've tasted uh, in other places but haven't been able to before. Beautiful. I mean, you guys have traveled all over the world. You've created new supply chains, and you have built up a network of farmers who have you know such specialties in you know individual herbs individual spices so what was that process process like because you have such a vast amount of offerings right now so how did you kind of get go from zero to where you are today yeah i mean it it really started with um cumin from afghanistan this wild cumin um and figuring out how to source it it's handpicked by foragers in the mountains during a very small window uh, at the end of the summer um, and once we figured out how to bring in a small shipment of cumin from Afghanistan, we, we figured maybe we can, maybe we can look at doing this in other places too. I mean, Afghanistan, if you were going to pick uh, one of the hardest places in the world, one of the most challenging supply chains you could imagine, uh, a wild foraged product from the remote mountains of Northeastern Afghanistan would, would be pretty high on that list. And so uh, what we realized was that the skills that we had learned in doing that first shipment um, were really applicable across the board and, and we were able to then set up supply chains from a cooperative in, in Zanzibar growing incredible black pepper, cloves, nutmeg, uh, cinnamon, um, a cardamom farmer in Guatemala. Uh, but, but so much of those partnerships, I mean, we, we, ref, we talk about them as our partner farmers. They really are partnerships. They're, they're the foundation of the business. Um, most of them, like like I said earlier, had never exported before. So so giving them insight into what what the supply chain looks like when the spices leave their farm, because in the commodity system, a farmer will sell their their crops to the local broker or middleman. Uh, sometimes it's a truck driver. Sometimes it's somebody with a little warehouse or a storeroom in the back of a shop. 
and that person is buying from a dozen farmers who's then selling on to somebody else with a bigger warehouse or a bigger truck and, uh, and spices will change hands you know 10 or 20 times before they've even left the country of origin that process can take uh, months or years even in many cases um, and so uh, being able to, to show up on a farm in Guatemala or Tanzania or, or wherever it might be and say, here's what we're proposing. This is our, this is our model. Uh, what do you think? And, and uh, the best relationships are the ones where, where the farmer goes, what took you so long to get here? I've had this idea for 15 years and have just never found an import partner, never found somebody to help me get this going and, and willing to do the extra work involved with importing from a, a, a small producer. Um, and, and so it really is the, the strength of those relationships that has kept our business going, uh, that, that in addition to the, the business arrangements that we have, we've really developed close personal relationships with a lot of our partner farmers, um, and traveling, visiting, spending time with them in person is, is a really important part of that. It's also a lot of fun, but, uh, but, but really it's about spending time on the farm, understanding what a farmer's process is like. Um, understanding what their the economics of their business might look like you know do they hire seasonal labor during the harvest season uh, are they saving up for some specialized equipment that will allow them to harvest faster or, or uh, process the, the spice after it's been harvested and are, are there ways that we can support them in those aspects of their business um, because we we really see and, and I mean they see also that that what's better for them is better for us it's it's a it's a mutually reinforcing arrangement um, and it's been working really well. We've been really, been really lucky to, to work with some exceptional farmers and, and have, have this system that we, you know, we didn't really know very much about going into it, have this system work, work as well as it does. Yeah, it's fantastic. I think that, you know, in a lot of ways, um, spices we kind of take for granted, you know, we see them on the grocery store shelves and, um, you know, kind of just expect them to be there and don't give uh, a lot of emphasis on, you know, where it came from. But I love the work that Burlap and Barrel is doing to, you know, make your farmers uh, part of the conversation and so visible and giving them a platform and the space to share, you know, their beautiful life work uh, with everybody. So it's super exciting and I absolutely love what you guys are doing. Um, but one thing that I want to mention is, you know, aside from all of the beautiful flavor that we get from spices that we use, they're also super functional. They're really anti-inflammatory and they can reduce symptoms of everything from arthritis to shrinking the size of tumors. They've been used medicinally for years, you know, all throughout history. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, what what have you kind of learned in your travels in terms of how spices might be be used uh, beyond flavor? Yeah, I mean, I think that the one of the fascinating things about spices is that there there are always multiple levels. There's the flavor, but then often there's a color component. There might be a health benefit component, um, and uh, because we're working in countries or in, in specific regions of countries where, where often spices have been grown for thousands of years. These are the places that these ingredients are native to. Um, there are just incredibly rich traditions of using them um, across the board. And, and we find that in the U.S. people tend to have pretty narrow understandings of how to use spices. Uh, the, the sweet savory divide is a, is a clear, is, is an obvious one. You know, people use cinnamon in sweet dishes, not very often in savory dishes. 
Whereas in other parts of the world, in the Middle East and South Asia, cinnamon is is a savory ingredient um, in addition to being a sweet ingredient. It doesn't have it doesn't have that kind of compartmentalization that happens here, where we say cinnamon can only be used in you know cinnamon buns. You can't put cinnamon in a in a tomato sauce. Um, so so just uh, expanding that understanding of how to use spices um, and and what they do for you, how they make you experience a meal. Uh, and how they make you feel afterwards. And some of the research being done around turmeric, um, around different species of cinnamon, about the ways that spices interact with other ingredients when you cook with them um, to, to really serve uh, as, as medicinal ingredients beyond, beyond flavors. It's, I mean, it's really fascinating stuff and, and, and speaks to the, the power of this, of this ingredient. I mean, we joke around that the spice trade is, is the oldest, it's the oldest trade, it's the oldest industry. I mean, this, is, this goes back as, as far back as, as all of human history where you know, somebody uh, grew something and then transported it someplace else where it didn't grow and sold it. Uh, that's, um, that, goes, that, that goes back as, as long as humans have, have existed and we're, we just sort of see ourselves as, a, as, as an updated version of that very rich tradition. So what has been the most surprising thing that you have learned throughout your journey in spices? You know, I, I think we, we've gone to, to Ethan is our, is the lead on our, on our sourcing and, and I get to join whenever, uh, whenever I think it'll be fun and interesting. And, and, you know, we're waiting for the next round of sourcing trips when it's safe to travel again. Um, but something that, that's been really interesting is that we end up sitting with farmers that live in rural areas thousands and thousands of miles away, and we just sit across the table from them and talk about their business, and what are their costs, and what does it take to grow this incredible cinnamon that these farmers are growing in Vietnam, or what does it take to grow this incredible peppercorns in Zanzibar, and really understand and they're entrepreneurs, and they're business people, and they're, you know, putting you know they're proud of, of what they're doing in the same way that we're proud of what we're doing and that we're also entrepreneurs and it's been really cool to, to say hey we've traveled as far away as we could have possibly traveled and we found fellow entrepreneurs that are also just trying to build their business in the same way as we have and so you like you come in and you're like this is going to be totally foreign to me and in fact it ends up feeling a lot more familiar than it does foreign and that's always been a really awesome you know it's always felt really fun to kind of walk into somebody's home walk into somebody's workplace their farm their field and they kind of immediately have that connection between the two of us. And so that, I've been really grateful for that and surprised in a really wonderful way. Beautiful. So I just want to touch on a few more things. So one, for all of us at home trying to figure out what is the best way for us to um, use our spices, store our spices, how do we get the best flavor out of them? What should we be doing? Yeah, you know, th there's a conventional wisdom a little bit of people saying, listen, what, what, what makes, what reduces the quality of your food? And it tends to be heat and light and moisture and time. And so what we suggest, like, I don't know, I think about it in a different way of like what most people do with their spices, they take them, they store them in the back of their pantry and hide them away. And then a decade later, they come back to them and realize that they still have bay leaves that, they, that came with the apartment that they live in. And so really around this, it's about getting them into your food and getting them into your cooking. So if you pick a couple spices every week and just put them next to your salt and pepper, next to your stove, put them on your table, like it's kind of that like out of sight, out of mind. If things are within arm's reach, you're going to start cooking with them more. You're going to start putting it more into your food and to just kind of practice that a little bit more. 
I, I would much rather your spices be, you know, out and about in your kitchen than, than kind of hidden away somewhere because you're just not going to think of it as much and it's going to start being this like special ingredient or special dish that you do once every three months. And so I would just say kind of use them, keep them out, try them out in things. I mean, it's easy with saying like cinnamon, use it in savory. Our cacao is excellent in a pot of beans, right? Like, so like try these different combinations. You can just try them like a little spoon or in a little side bowl to just see how it all works. But I'd say like be bold and, and, and mess around with this and you're going to find yourself ordering in food a lot less and, and really impressing yourself and your partner and your friends. And so, um, yeah, we'd say just kind of get them out and, and use them as much as possible. I love that. And Nora, you already kind of touched on this earlier, but um, your, your spices um, and any spices that are really fresh or perhaps single origin, um, you do get a little bit more of an intense flavor. Uh, so if you are following a recipe, you may find that you need to maybe use a little bit less. Um, but you know, that's one of the problems with recipes in general. It's kind of assuming that everybody has the same quality of uh, ingredients, that everything's the same ripeness and, and all that. So I guess um, maybe Ethan, you might have some advice for trying to play around with achieving a flavor balance in a dish where you, know, you are following a recipe, but your ingredients might not be the same as what was originally intended. And how do you kind of teach yourself that new skill? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the thing with recipes is that uh, there's always this assumed level of variability, right? Like uh, no matter how much work a recipe tester can do to make sure that the recipe is, is written understandably, there will always be a little bit of variation. Your stove works differently. You're using a different pot. The ingredients that you have access to are going to be a little bit different. So I think um, built, using a recipe as a foundation to, to then make something that you love that tastes great uh, is a is is the way to do it rather than trying to stick to a recipe you know for every tiny little detail because you you may get it right but you may not uh, and um, learning through using recipes learning to adapt and customize and and build a flavor profile that you and and your family like uh, can can sometimes help turn a recipe from something that was just sort of fine something that that you love and and wind up cooking again and again and again so. Um, you know, do you like more tart or sour flavors? Do you like more acidity? Do you like more spiciness? Do you like, do you like your food to be saltier? So getting a sense of, of your sort of favorite uh, flavor profile um, and then using all of the ingredients that fit within that category to, to build that profile or, or at least kind of turn a recipe in that direction so that you like it more. So if, if you like tart flavors, um, ingredients like sumac or, or our black lime that already mentioned earlier, uh, do you like flavors that are a little bit sweeter, maybe cinnamon or ginger or cardamom going into a savory dish um, will, will make you like that dish more. And, and what we always recommend is to start with a, a dish, a recipe that you know really well, something that you cook pretty regularly, and, and use that as the canvas to experiment with a, a spice that you haven't cooked with before. So, so if cardamom is the thing that you want to learn to use and you love making macaroni and cheese, try making a cardamom mac and cheese and see, see how that new flavor changes a dish that you, that you already know and love. Uh, and then, and then you'll, just have, you'll just be able to more easily apply it to other dishes and, and uh, you'll understand more about how that flavor works. Uh, I think a cardamom mac and cheese sounds absolutely lovely. So that sounds like a fun idea to play around with. 
Yeah. Um, so the, the last thing that I want to touch on is, um, uh, Ori, I know that, that you got uh, your start um, in, in the job market actually as a DJ, and you have been incorporating this a little bit into Burlap and Barrel. So can you tell us about that? Oh my God! Saying that I started as a DJ is, is a real uh, is a real compliment to, to the business that it was. When I was 16, my parents bought me a three CD changer boombox, as we've all seen in the you know shelves of Best Buy or whatever. And I decided that that would be a good use to, to that I could make some money uh, uh, DJing parties of children younger than I was. And so yeah, that was my first entrepreneurial gig, and the first time that I was like. Maybe, maybe starting businesses is a, is a viable career path. And the jury's still out on it. You know, we're trying to make it happen. <laughs> but but um, yeah, very much so. But, you know, a big thing for in the first year when we started the company, you know, all of our, as with early stage food companies, like how do you get started when you're tiny? Who will work with you? You can't have a big shipping facility. You can't have a big warehouse or anything like that. And so everything started shipping out of Ethan's living room, you know, and so that's where the business was. And, and I was living in San Francisco and I'd come over uh, all, all the time. And then we would uh, kind of, um, uh, you know, like uh, start packing and then we'd always just have our playlist going on in the background while we were packing spices, while we were cooking, while we were just kind of running this, you know, uh, for all the hours that we could stay awake for it. And so out of that kind of came these uh, cooking playlists, the, the new spice route. And so the idea was that like the spices come from all over the world. Let's create a playlist that has music that comes from all over the world um, that, that you can also kind of keep you company while you're cooking. And so, you know, we pulled together these playlists that are, that are all about kind of getting started with good energy, right? Because in the beginning, you're chopping, you're preparing, you got the high heat going, you're sauteing. Um, and so you got this good energy at the beginning. And then you kind of like eases into the like boiling and bubbling and stirring form of the cooking. And then they kind of end off strong again to just kind of as we're getting ready to eat. And so there's a little flow here. Hopefully it's a good mix of artists that you've never heard of um, from languages that you don't recognize and some things that you do know and some of the classics that'll kind of bring you through and kind of keep you bopping along. So we put these out every three months with every season. And um, it's been it's been a really fun way for people to kind of Get, get burlap and barrel kind of involved in their kitchens in a different way than just in their pantry. I love it. So we will be sure to share a link to that and I'm going to be checking that out right after this conversation. Super excited. Um, but I just want to thank you guys so, so much and encourage everyone to check out burlapandbarrel.com to see, you know, the beautiful spices that Ori and Ethan have been able to source. Um, and also check out Burlap and Barrel um, on Instagram and you can really, really see where these spices are coming from. And uh, it's, it's absolutely beautiful. I love your Instagram and so happy that I got a chance to speak with you both today. Yeah, it's been a pleasure to, to chat with you. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks. John. I also recommend we have a, a Facebook group. So anybody who's new to cooking with spices, we have a very active uh, spice forum on Facebook with um, uh, lots of interaction and experts to ask questions about cooking with spices and recipe recommendations and things like that. So anybody who's interested in learning more about cooking, that's a great place to start. Beautiful. Thank you both so much. Thank you. All right, let's switch gears and check back in with Dr. Rachel Hers, the author of Why You Eat What You Eat, to learn more about how our food habits are shifting and how we can have a 
good relationship with comfort food. Enjoy. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in. My name is Shauna McQueen, and I am here once again with the wonderful Rachel Hurst, neuroscientist and author of Why You Eat What You Eat. Dr. Hurst, thank you so much for joining me once again. Thank you so much, Shauna, for having me. So today we're going to talk about the future of food. Our behaviors have changed a lot when it comes to how we're eating and how we're shopping for our food. Um, so I'm curious to know, what kind of habits do you think are likely to stick around and what kind of food habits are we picking up that you think might be more short-lived trends? So I think something that I'm at least hoping will stick around is people making more food at home. And that is to say that buying less completely prepared foods. So I'm not talking about not going out for dinner to restaurants and bars and pubs and things like that, but I'm talking about getting the ready-made meals or the prepackaged frozen meals, because especially the prepackaged frozen meals contain often many ingredients that are fairly harmful for our health, especially trans fats and a lot of added sugars and salt and fats and so forth that we don't necessarily need. And if we're cooking more at home, I think that there we're going to you know, there's hopefully a little bit of a translation into getting into a habit about it. And one of the things I think is really interesting just as a basis of human behavior is habit is very much what drives us in many circumstances. So when we've been forced into a new routine, we develop habits as a function of that. And I'm hoping that one of the habits that's here, that's here to stay is making more meals from quote unquote scratch. So not to say that you aren't buying partially prepared aspects of it, but that we're doing more cooking and preparing food at home. We have more control over the ingredients that we're consuming and ultimately that's healthier for us. And I think that as a function of the habit of doing that more, we should be getting into that more. Um, one of the things I, I'm not sure how much this will translate into long-term trends is the amount of app or online shopping that people are doing. And I, I know that you wanted to pursue this in one of your questions with me today, but I think that that has a lot to do with individual preferences for how much people like going to the market. And some people I know really dislike grocery shopping and having to do this online has now opened up this wonderful opportunity. They no longer have to schlep and drag themselves around stores and you know all the things that they find annoying about grocery shopping. And they can do this in a much more simple and streamlined way. But I think for other people, probably more of the foodie types and people that just like the sort of aesthetic and sensual pleasures of being in a grocery store, you know, with the produce, with the other products and so forth, that there's going to be a real desire to get back to that. And so I think that there may be a little bit of a shift for those who really dislike doing that, that they may end up doing more of that. And that's now a new trend. But I'm thinking that there's also going to be sort of a swinging back at the pendulum for people who really enjoy the shopping experience and sort of the European model of every day I go to the market and I pick up the ingredients or the things I'm going to need to prepare meals for that day. So I'm, I'm uncertain where that's going to go, but I, I feel like there's a little bit of a short-term and potentially long-term, depending upon the person involved aspect to the online shopping. Absolutely. And a lot of us are incorporating a lot more tech aspects, like you mentioned, ordering our groceries online and, um, you know, ordering our food from different apps. Um, and we're also 
We're also doing more things like contactless delivery, where I feel like we're becoming a little bit more disconnected from our food and our food's origins. Um, so I would be interested to know what, what you think about that and the effect that that is having on our food relationship. So I definitely think this is a big issue and uh, sort of a scary issue for our time in a way, because we are already, I think, so disconnected and so online and out of human <laughs> in so many of our interactions and it's only increasing in so many spheres. I mean, I think that the pandemic has really reduced social interaction at every level and food is a great exemplar of that and a great metaphor for that. But I think that it's just a expression of so many other aspects where we've lost contact with other human beings in a way that I think can be quite dangerous just in terms of how we you know, connect with each other, how much we care about each other, how much we don't care about what happens, and how we can be sort of not even aware of the humanity of other people in, in a way. So I think that that's actually a sort of a frightening component of it. One thing, though, that I think is kind of interesting that is potentially a good variation of some of this is the environmental impact of having you know, more food delivered and less driving around ourselves. So if you think of that, maybe <clears throat> there's one delivery person in a vehicle making stops at various places, whether it be for our takeout or groceries or alcohol purchase or whatever, as opposed to each, you know, individual household making all those trips. And this is much more probably the case if you live in more, ur more suburban environments rather than in, in big cities like New York. But the sort of the carbon emissions, I think, from having more delivery, at least, could be something that's beneficial from an ecological standpoint. And potentially recognizing that, and also I think this is, goes into sort of how our shopping behavior has changed, where some people now are, you know, you're making lists of specific things that we need. We're being, first of all, a lot less impulse buying, because what's, you know, when you're buying things online, you can't sort of go, oh, I really want those candies. <laughs> or I really, you know, the potato chips look great and they're on sale. Uh, you don't see that as much. But the other thing is that if we're only, let's say, going to drive to the grocery store or whatever once a week, that's also reducing our carbon footprint quite a bit than the daily driving to the grocery store and so forth, or driving to multiple different places to purchase foods and beverages and so on. So I think that maybe if people are conscientious of this aspect of a change in behavior and recognize the sort of pro-environmental consequences of it, I think that that could be a benefit just in terms of being a little bit more mindful about what we're doing when we're purchasing food and beverages and, and to do it a little bit more in a planned way rather than a more thoughtless way where there may be a bigger carbon footprint. Right. It does kind of force you to be a little bit more intentional um, if you are going through and placing your orders online. But um, going back to how our behaviors have have changed in terms of the things that we're ordering. So while we may not be impulse buying as much, um, there's some data to show that sales of things like frozen waffles and packaged cookies really kind of skyrocketed as um, the lockdowns began. But now, you know, months later, we may find that these items are still kind of finding their way into our carts. So, um, I, I kind of want to know, like, what do you think? Because that is creating a, a new behavior also where we probably 
thought it would be like a short-lived thing where we would pick these things up, you know, to help give us a little bit of comfort in the moment. And now we've kind of reinstilled that drive to seek them out. So how do you kind of find that balance between honoring that um, emotional comfort that you get from something, but still being empowered in choosing, you know, whole foods that help support our overall health, um, health and wellness? So I think this is another example of maybe a habit gone a little overboard or, or overlong, as it were, because, uh, or something that became a habit as a function of the initial desire to comfort ourselves and make ourselves feel a little happier with just the pleasure of consumption that then became a habit that maybe doesn't serve the same desire any longer, or maybe even doesn't have the same sort of hedonic wonderfulness as it once did. So I think recognizing whether or not we're buying frozen waffles and chips and candies and so forth and cookies, because it just became a kind of a habit that that's what's in our cart. And I know that also sometimes these online shopping programs will kind of remind you of what you purchased last time. And so maybe often sometimes repopulating your purchase orders without your necessarily being very intentional about, oh yeah, I definitely want those frozen waffles. I definitely want the Oreos. So I think that's part of it is being aware of the fact that certain things that became, uh, that were initially a treat and initially a special comfort have now either become a habit or something that's part of our list that if we thought about it, we wouldn't necessarily include. And the other thing though, which is something that I always say in all contexts when it comes to the balance between desire and kind of maybe health when it comes to eating, is to ask yourself a question, and I think purchasing is part of it, but the consumption level is really the key place where this is happening. So if, for example, frozen waffles are your special comfort food and you know they remind you of childhood and when you first started buying them during the beginning of the pandemic, they were really soothing and wonderful. But now if you're still eating that on a regular basis, you know, seven months later or so, the question is to sort of say, while you're eating it, is this really giving me the comfort and pleasure that I was initially seeking out and initially received from this? Or is it just like, you know, whatever, now this is what I have for breakfast. And if it's the latter, I think that that was a time to sort of say, no, wait, this should be something that's special. This should be something that's comforting. This should be something that's not like an everyday staple because it's now lost what it originally gave me. And at the same time, even while we're eating something, to do the same kind of questioning. So the first couple of bites of the waffle may be tremendous, but after, you know, more or less halfway through or something, maybe we've decided that it's not so great anymore and it doesn't give us what we really want. And so maybe we're gonna stop and we're gonna have some fresh fruit instead. So it's kind of a question, and again, also we don't want to we don't want waste. So if you're sort of realizing that all you need is half a waffle, let's say, to give you what you really wanted, then you start sort of portioning out your meals a little bit differently. But I think it's about recognizing the balance between the pleasure and the comfort and whatever else that's really great that the food is giving you with what you're actually getting from the food in that moment and then deciding whether it be health or weight or other, you know, features of conscientiousness that you want to maintain, whether it's worth it in that given moment to continue the consumption or continue the purchasing. So I think it's just about being 
a little bit more aware and taking a little bit more control and agency in your experience with eating. It's interesting because, you know, those particular comfort, comfort foods that we seek out, they tend to be the ones higher in calories, higher in fat, higher in sugar. Um, and we do create an emotional connection to them, but just the, um, the nature of the ingredients can create a compulsive like behavior in us where we want to seek more out to, cause maybe we weren't getting that same pleasure from, you know, the first time that we had it. So it almost takes more and more to give us that pleasure. Um, when in the end it is, you know, kind of, kind of dulling it rather than just really appreciating those first few moments where you get to enjoy it. Well, that's absolutely true. And actually there's an expression in the food industry that the food that you're eating or the, what the, the manufacturers and the, the brands are trying to get you to experience is something called more-ish. So that the food is more-ish, that is to say, I want more of it. So that first bite just makes you want more. And I think that you've hit upon a really interesting point because um, in addition to the fact that there's this, okay, I just had a bite, but that's not good enough. I want more and I want more and I want more. You do also mention, and this is really important, the dulling of the experience. And this is something that happens with everything that we consume that happens at a sensory level, that the first bite is much more intense than the fifth bite. And it gets even progressively less and less intense as we continue to eat whatever it is. And so this again, this awareness of where is that pivot point? Where's the drop off? Uh, even though this potato chip really was saying more-ish to me at the start, maybe after five potato chips, I'm not really even tasting the potato chips anymore. And now's the time for me again to sort of say, okay, I need to stop or maybe even just take a break because there is a sort of aspect of this which can be, you know, rejuvenated as it were. If we take a break from eating the food, you can get more pleasure from it again. But that break could also give you the opportunity to reflect on whether or not you really want to be eating this and um, for health or weight and other kinds of reasons. So I think that it's about being aware of these sensory aspects of food that may first lure you in to want more, but then also recognizing that those same features are actually going to be what dull your experience of the sensory pleasure components of it. And therefore, at that moment is a good time to stop. Right. And I think, you know, right now um, we are kind of trying to do two different things with our diet, which probably isn't too different from how most of us live in general, where it's like one kind of seeking out that, you know, that comfort food that tends to be more indulgent. And then also at the same time, there was a recent survey that found that 51% of Americans are concerned about gaining weight or being less active during this time and also trying to use their diet to support health. Um, so there are just these two things that seem that we are constantly trying to balance. Um, but I'm wondering, how do you feel the food industry is going to kind of capitalize on those two things? And how can we, how can we help to get people to kind of meet in the middle? 
Yes, yeah, so I actually don't know what secrets the food industry is plotting at the moment, um, but certainly they always want to drive sales up so that if they see specifically that sales of certain, you know, sectors of their, you know, brands and so on are increasing, they're going to see how they can make sure that that maintains or even increases. And if they see drop-offs in other aspects of their, let's say, portfolio of food, they may actually stop producing those to the same extent. But something that I think that's interesting, even though, you know, people are definitely driven towards comfort, high calorie, high fat and sugar foods and so on, is also that there has been a simultaneous trend for an increase in, in certain types of fresh produce. And in particular, I saw something recently that oranges have been really increasing in terms of sales and purchase desire among general consumers. So even though we may be still buying more cookies and frozen waffles, we're actually also buying now more fresh fruit and produce. So I think that there is an awareness in general amongst food consumers that there's a desire at the same time for fresh ingredients and fresh fruits and vegetables. So hopefully that will you know, increase as well. And that's a little less about brands and more about how your grocery store stocks things. But I think that you know it's always the case that consumers drive the the industry so if as consumers we say you know we don't want those cookies anymore then they won't be quite as available as they would be if the marketers and the brands say wow these cookies they're selling like gangbusters let's make more and more of them and we see that this is an opportunity to even have more categories within that type of food and so forth so i think that we can band together as consumers and food eaters and decide how we want the industry to move with us because it does change as a function of the things that we do, even though it often feels like we're at the mercy of it. Yeah, and you know, not only, um, not only is it important for us to be empowered consumers, but also um, empowered within our own food environments. So what we are kind of creating for ourselves at home. So I'm wondering if you have any advice to help you know, prompt us to make, you know, a healthy choice, an easy choice within our own homes. So one thing that I think is important is to sort of the geography of your home and how you have things positioned with ease of access. <laughs> because in addition to the fact that, you know, we easily form habits that may not necessarily be super healthy, you know, just like, you know, eating certain foods becomes a habit it may, that might not be so healthy. Exercise or lack thereof can also become a habit. So if you used to be going to the gym all the time and now you're not, the lack of going to the gym is also sort of a habit in its own right, whereas before going to the gym was. But at the same time as the fact that we're very habit oriented, I think we're also, and I, this is no disrespect, this is everyone, certainly myself included, that we're kind of lazy. <laughs> and that is to say that the amount of effort that it would take, for instance, for us to go eat cookies, eat potato chips, eat whatever it is in our home has to do with the distance and the effort that we have to go to procure those things. So if we put you know, the indulgent, less healthy foods further out of our reach or in, a, in an area where it just is more of a nuisance to go get it and have our fresh fruits and vegetables, by contrast, within very close proximity, that can be a very easy trick, just that slight modification to altering how and how much we eat of specific types of foods. So for example, if, 
if you live in a house which has um, you know more than one floor let's just say or the kitchen is in one location and you have your television room is is further away from it you can you can put things that you don't want to eat in the sort of further part of the home so if you have a pantry you know keeping that further away from where you are when you're just kind of grazing or sitting in front of the tv or sitting at the computer and instead having right beside you right beside the computer right beside the tv you know fresh fruits, um, grapes, and think cherries, or whatever's in season, nuts, which although they are high in calories and fat, are also very satiating and very good for you. A part of a actually a very healthy diet plan is to eat a lot of nuts. And also the fact that they actually fill us up. I mean, one of the interesting things about potato chips, in addition to their their full flavor profile being more-ish, that even though we may dull to the sensory aspect of it, potato chips are not actually very filling foods. So we don't, even though we are consuming a lot of calories often, they don't feel like we've eaten very much. By contrast, eating a lot of uh, nuts, for example, they're very filling. So we can actually stop and we don't want any more of the walnuts or the almonds after you know a certain amount of them, even though there may be a number of calories in that. It's actually a lot more satiating. So basically what I'm just saying is that engineering your food environment so that you have healthy snacks close at hand where you can just sort of basically reach for them or move you know a very short distance to get them where we have our more unhealthy snacks further away from us where there's much more effort to go and get them and serve them to ourselves so this is kind of a very simple way of just manipulating your home environment for making the types of food choices you you make on a constant basis healthier I love that. It's something that I'm, you know, trying to even do within my own house, but um, something so that you don't have to have that, that conversation with yourself of like, am I going to eat this? Am I not going to eat this? Every time you, you know, you walk by and there's that like famous research paper with the chocolate kisses in the office and you know how close you are with them you tend to take significantly more um so i think yeah building up your awareness of of that is something that i'm sure a lot of us uh are are going to be working on over the next few months <laughs> well i mean it's it really is something that's very easy to do and i do it as well i mean definitely i mean we're all like i said you know creatures of habit and we don't like to expend a lot of energy and if the chips are in front of us while we're watching television it's extremely hard to stop ourselves because another thing is often when we're eating these foods we're distracted by something else going on like you know a captivating or engaging movie or show or whatever else we're doing or even if we're doing this while we're working or sitting at a computer or watching facebook videos or whatever the case might be you know these things can happen almost without our awareness and all of a sudden we see that the the bowl is empty whereas if we have to actually make a big effort to do that we're going to be a lot more i think mindful also of the experience of eating it and if it is the case that you have a big bowl of nuts and grapes in front of you while you're distracted i think that because they're so much more satiating even if you're kind of distracted while you're eating the grapes and nuts you're going to consume far less of it just because of the physiological component that they're much more filling right I, I actually have one more question and it is it is kind of personal, but out of curiosity, um, what is your favorite comfort food? So, you know, I did not prepare an answer for that because I, I have 
different foods for kind of different comfort needs, <laughs> I guess, because so, for example, um, I mean, the ingredient component of foods is very rewarding and pleasurable in and of themselves. So, you know, the, the pure pleasure components of, for example, chocolate for me, especially dark chocolate, can be, you know, just what I want at a given moment. If I'm feeling kind of sick, um, there's the, a kind of a, it'll sound gross, comfort food from my childhood that is a combination. That's, I don't do this exactly anymore, but my mom used to make for me this, it was tuna fish and rice, which was, you know, warm rice mixed with canned tuna and mayonnaise. And I know it sounds disgusting, but that was like this comfort food and from childhood. And whenever I feel like not very well, I don't know why this, a variation of that, usually not with quite the same ingredients, or even if I just make myself a tuna sandwich or um, a tuna salad, that that is soothing to me. And that that has the nostalgia component, I think, um, as being one of the major aspects of the of why that this is comforting. And I certainly, you know, one of the things I think is interesting when it comes to comfort for two is, like I said, again, going back to habit. I think it's so powerful because I think that when I get into a habit of eating something, I definitely eat it more. So when I'm eating, giving myself more chocolate treats, you know, if I say, okay, after this interview with Shauna. I'm going to go and eat a brownie because <laughs> I did such a good job or something like that. Um, if I do a lot of interviews and I tell myself this is what I get, then I'm doing this almost every day, just like the frozen waffles. Mm -hmm. First of all, it becomes more of a habit and then it becomes more regular rotation comfort food. But secondly, unfortunately, it also loses some of that appeal and, and, and reward quality. So it's not quite as, as good of a, like a, a gold star sticker as it was originally when I gave myself that reward. So it is interesting for me to notice even within myself how, you know, certain types of foods or certain foods will become regular rotation, whether they're for main meals or healthy snacks or comfort foods. And then when they're in regular rotation, that is sort of what I tend to go for. And then when I don't eat something for a while, it kind of becomes something more of a special treat and it sort of gets coded for myself in a different way. So because I haven't had a brownie in a long time and I actually have some, I'm going to have one after the interview. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> People wow. brought brownies over on the weekend. We had um, some friends over for outside dining and they brought a tray of brownies and I'm like, no, 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 don't bring these, please. And uh, so... There you go. Truth revealed. Well, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing all of this. I think that um, you definitely should enjoy the brownie, as I'm sure you will. And um, I hope to speak to you again soon. Thank you so, so much. Okay. Thank you, Shauna. It was great. All right, that's just about it. If you haven't checked out the December issue for Spotted Food, be sure to check it out on Fresh Beats. There are some lovely holiday recipes there, like a gingerbread latte, a golden beet and barley walnut salad, um, a beautiful beetroot chocolate cake. So be sure to check those out. Thank you so much again to Ori and Ethan and Dr. Hers, and we'll see you again next month. Bye.